You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The taste of the wine he was selling right now in London, just past 2.30 p.m. on Thursday, December 5, 1985, was impossible to know. December 5th had special meaning for Broadbent. It was the same date that James Christie, in 1766, had held the auction house's very first sale. Moments earlier, Broadbent had stepped up to the rostrum in a three-piece suit with a pocket square and peered out at the room through his eyeglasses. Lot 337 was the first item of the afternoon session and had been carefully removed from its green felt berth in a glass case nearby. Lucy Godzel, a secretary in Broadbent's office, held the bottle aloft for the room to see. She looked very Christie's, blonde, headband, pearl necklace, and Broadbent liked her. She was smart, hardworking, and pretty. Broadbent had never sold anything quite like this before. A Chateau Lafitte from 1787, it was the oldest authenticated vintage red wine ever to come up for auction at Christie's and that was the least of its merits. The bottle was engraved with the initials THJ. As Broadbent had described it in the auction catalog, THJ are the initials of Thomas Jefferson. Almost miraculously, the bottle was full of wine and appeared to have survived two centuries intact. The container itself was beautiful and distinctive. This is one time, Broadbent quipped to the crowd, when the buyer will get something back on the bottle. The admittedly fragmentary tale of how the bottle had been found only added to its mystique. According to Hardy Rodenstock, the German collector who had consigned the bottle to Christie's, in the spring of 1985, workers tearing down a house in Paris had broken through a false wall in the basement and happened upon a hidden cache of extremely old wines. The Lafitte, inscribed with the initials of the founding father, who had lived in Paris from 1784 to 1789 and was the foremost American wine connoisseur of his day, had been among them. The integrity of the seals and the high fill levels, Rodenstock had told Broadbent, were remarkable for their age. The cellar had been almost hermetically preserved, its steady temperature in the sweet spot of 50 to 57 degrees Fahrenheit. Rodenstock theorized that the bottles had been walled up to protect them during the chaos of the French Revolution and had lain undisturbed for 200 years. Not surprisingly, Rodenstock refused to divulge the precise location, the exact number of bottles, or anything else about the discovery, despite Broadbent's entreaties. Rodenstock was the leading private collector in Europe, and he had already made a name for himself in rare wine circles as an unusually skilled bottle hunter. Though he was a longtime customer of Christie's, Rodenstock was a competitor when it came to obtaining private sellers. Private seller purchases were often cash deals that went unreported to tax authorities. A certain reticence about his sources was to be expected. Broadbent felt there were a couple of possibilities. One was that the bottle had indeed been discovered during the excavations of the old Marais district in Paris, much of which had recently been torn up and redeveloped. A rumor less credited by Broadbent, and which he had no intention of putting in the catalog copy, was that the bottle had been part of some sort of Nazi cellar. Benjamin Wallace has written for GQ, Food and Wine, and Philadelphia. His first book is The Billionaire's Vinegar. Thank you for joining me, Benjamin. Thanks for having me, Rick. What initially brought the story to your attention? How did you find this story? Well, I was always a fan of 
books such as Simon Winchester's The Professor and the Madman or Susan Orlean's The Orchid Thief or John Barrent's Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. And I was a foodie. I wasn't especially a wine person, but I was sort of frustrated by the offerings in in the wine book category. They're either wine for dummies sorts of books or very encyclopedic, you know, books such as, you know, History of Weather Patterns in the Coat Door in Burgundy. And so I sort of wished that a book existed for wine, you know, like these other books. And I was actually, I sought out a story set like that. I, I was looking around for a story that just happened to be set in the world of wine. And I, I first thought, well, maybe I could write the biography of a single bottle of wine, you know, showing how it was made and the people who made it and what happened to it and who owns it now. And then the next step was, well, if I'm going to write a biography of a bottle of wine, let's find this, you know, the single most interesting bottle of wine on the planet. And that led me eventually to these bottles because I started doing a lot of reading and I was reading a memoir by a British wine writer named Jancis Robinson, who has herself intersected with some of these bottles. And she kind of obliquely mentioned the most expensive bottle of wine ever sold. And she, you know, referred to a few of the characters involved and it just seemed like the tip of an iceberg. And so then I did some interviews and some initial research and it just kept getting better and better as I got deeper into it. Well, this is a fascinating story. One of the things that makes it really interesting is the gallery of characters you introduce throughout the book. And in your reading, you uh, talk about uh, Michael Broadbent. Tell us uh, who Michael Broadbent is and where a little bit about his history. Okay. Well, Michael Broadbent is has, has several claims to fame. He pretty much invented the modern international wine auction market in 1966 when he founded Christie's Wine Department, Christie's being the big auction house in London. And he's also just a real character. I mean, even today at 82, he rides around London on a three-speed woman's bicycle with a basket, you know, with a little hat on his head. And, uh, you know, he's, he's famous for having probably the most experienced palate in the world. Um, through his job as an auctioneer at Christie's, he's tasted probably more old wines than anybody else. And he's taken meticulous notes on all of them, uh, which he has published in a giant kind of encyclopedia of tastes called The Great Vintage Wine Book. And he also has a really colorful way of describing uh, the taste of wines. And he often seems to, to use analogies that involve women. So, you know, he'll say he'll compare a wine to a middle-aged woman with her slip showing. Or in one particularly racy example, he said that a wine was redolent of chocolate and schoolgirls' uniforms. Oh, that, that is racy. And uh, I would like a glass of that wine, actually. Um, one of the things about these bottles of wine, it, it's really fascinating to think that how much history is in a single bottle of wine. And in fact, I, I believe it's um, uh, Broadbent who, is it Broadbent who says that you're drinking history? It was Rodenstock. But that's that's typical that um, these guys who are in, and they're all guys, these guys who are in this subculture, this hobby of super old, super rare wine, uh, one of the, it's almost a, a tradition that when you open one of these bottles, you talk about what was happening in the year that it was bottled. So, you know, they, they'll kind of wax, you know, nostalgic or, or rhapsodic about, you know, Napoleon was, you know, Napoleon's armies were crossing Europe or reaching Moscow that month, you know, and that sort of thing. When we meet um, Hardy Rodenstock, he's uh, kind of a chameleonic figure from the very beginning, isn't he? He is. Uh, he sort of turned up on the German wine scene in the late 70s and the early 80s. And from the very beginning, the people who he got to know in the wine circles didn't really know that much about him personally. And over the years, he 
has seemed to almost deliberately expand his own mystique by by never really revealing that much about himself. And he, you know, likes to communicate by fax often uh, rather than meeting people face to face. And he has multiple residences. I mean, I think four or five and one in Munich and one in a ski village in Austria and one on the coast of Bordeaux and one on Marbella. And I think he's, he also has a place in Monaco, you know, which is always a red flag. And uh, And it turns out that much of his biography is also uh, somewhat murky, but that is revealed in the book. One of the things that's interesting in this book is it really documents the growth of the collector's wine subculture, which there wasn't much of one. And you talk about a particular group of men, and this is a group of men called that you call the group. Right. This was a group who, I mean, they, they called themselves that, a uh, capital G group. And it was a group of guys in the late 70s, they sort of arose and one of them was a neurosurgeon in Dallas, you know, who, who wore a fur coat with a bolo tie and who, you know, had a giant collection of wine. And he would throw these lavish tastings, uh, you know, in, in, they're called vertical tastings where you're drinking multiple vintages of a single chateau as opposed to a horizontal tasting where you're drinking one vintage and lots of different chateaux. And so he, he, he was famous for throwing, I think, a, a vertical of Lafitte, one of the most famous Bordeaux wines uh, that went back to 1799, and he threw that in the late 70s. And then there was a guy, Lloyd Flat, who was, you know, reputed to be an arms dealer or arms designer who, you know, had an eye patch and who lived in New Orleans and had actually turned his entire house. He lived in a house on Ursuline Street. And at a certain point, his wine collection grew so large that he moved out of the house and turned the house into a, into a wine cellar, the whole house. And Flat was interesting because he claimed to have uh, created the missile that sunk the British uh, uh, destroyer off the Falklands War. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> so. But you know, but writers, whenever they talked about him, would describe him as an aerospace consultant. That's all. That's, that's all they would say. As this group grew, their, their tastings became ever more decadent through the '80s, and it was really uh, some of the spectacles they threw were really quite amazing. Could you talk about some of the places that they held these parties and just the sh- and give us a little more um, detail on the horizontal versus vertical tastings because this is, becomes an important plot point in the book. Right. Well, the, these tastings, each of these guys, Rodenstock, Hardy Rodenstock, th- threw the most of through through you know more of these than anybody else. Every year he would throw one, and every year he would try to outdo himself. But there was also a kind of one upsmanship that came into play among all these guys. And so if you know Hardy threw a party with forty vintages of Lafitte, then his buddy Hans Peter you know would then throw a tasting with fifty vintages of Lafitte, and it just kept going up and up and becoming grander and more decadent and. Some of the really decadent ones were, you know, Hardy Rodenstock recreated the um, Three Emperors Dinner of 1867, which was a famous, you know, feast that brought, you know, a bunch of uh, royalty to um, Paris in 1867. And he recreated it down to, you know, every single wine that was served at that meal in 1867 was served at his recreation of it, which was, I think, in 1989. And every, you know, aspect of the food from, you know, hot quail pate to ortolans, these, you know, little thrushes that you eat whole with, a, I think, a napkin over your head or something. Uh, that was that was pretty over the top. And then his his grandest tasting was a tasting of the uh, wine called Ikem, Chateau Ikem, which is the most famous sweet wine, most famous uh, white sweet wine from Bordeaux. It's a Sauterne. 
and he has assembled 125 vintages of it, and the tasting lasted seven days. And everyone, you know, all the wine world's luminaries flew into Munich for this, and, you know, their hotel and food were comped, the wine was comped, and it was just a really, it was, it was like the Iron Man of wine. Now, this whole wine culture, though, that you talk about, it has an early, early start, and you document this. It's really fascinating with Thomas Jefferson uh, over in his famous trip to the Bordeaux. Right. In Jefferson lived in Paris from 1784 to 1789 as a as a minister from you know the fledgling fledgling United States, and in 1787 he took a three month trip around France, uh, going through a lot of the major wine regions, including Burgundy and the Rhone Valley and Bordeaux, and you know ostensibly it was to you know check out sort of trade and you know, commercial activity and things like that. But I mean, Jefferson was basically a wine nut who took a three-month vacation through all the wine regions. And Jefferson was ordering, you know, a lot of the the best wines even then and was, at the time, probably the foremost connoisseur writing in any language. One of my favorite uh, sort of anecdotes about Jefferson and wine, which I think really illustrates what a nut about wine he was, was when James Monroe was elected president, Jefferson wrote him a four-page letter congratulating him, and the first sentence congratulated him, and the last sentence congratulated him, and the entire rest of the four-page letter advised him on which wines the White House should stock. And one thing about Jefferson, though, that he was a meticulous note-taker so that everything he did, everything he bought, everywhere he went, he wrote down in duplicate. That's right. He... You know, he, had, he invented this, this device, actually, which allowed him to make copies of every letter that he wrote. So he had copies of every letter that he wrote. He kept every letter that he received. He, he left behind, I think, 14,000 letters or 16,000 letters. He also had a log in which he recorded the sending and receipt of every letter. He also kept a record of every single purchase that he made. And on his, he, uh, at one point he said, um, actually, I think on his, on his deathbed, he said that he had only made one omission to that log in the last 25 years. So there really was an incredibly meticulous record of everything he bought and did related to wine. And, and this proves to be a bit of a problem because when Harvey Rodenstock revealed that he had found these wines in this uh, Paris cellar in a scene that sounds straight out of a movie, um, there was no real record in, in about that, was there? There wasn't. He reported having found this cache of bottles from four different chateaux, Chateau Margaux, Chateau Lafitte, Chateau Mouton, and Chateau Ikem from two vintages, 1784 and 1787. Well, the scholars at Monticello, where you know Jefferson famously lived and which is now a, a research center uh, for Jefferson scholars, they said, okay, well, if that's, you know, if Jefferson left wine behind uh, from those vintages and those chateaux, it should be easy enough for us to find a record of it. And they couldn't. They went They went through the records and they said, these vintages in these chateaux just do not tally with the record left behind by Jefferson. But still, there was enough room for doubt so that Michael Broadbent, uh, he looked at these bottles and had the people, his people at Christie's look at these bottles. And he was pretty sure they were the real deal, wasn't he? He was. And there were a few issues in play. I mean, one is you know, did they belong to Jefferson? The other is, are they real bottles of 1787 Chateau Lafitte? And Broadbent's expertise is in wine, not in 
Thomas Jefferson. So in his opinion, they looked like he had a lot of experience dealing with old wine, and they looked like legitimately old bottles of wine to him, and the other experts at Christie's concurred, you know, glass experts, engraving experts. I think Broadbent also brought to the situation almost just a, he's more, the, the Monticello people are, you know, scholars and skeptics. Broadbent's a salesman and a believer, and I think he wanted it, he wanted them to have belonged to Jefferson, and so his attitude was, you know, nobody leaves a complete record. How do you know that they, there couldn't have been one record that, you know, showed that he did buy these? You know, it's not, you can't prove a negative, you know. He, he was the Fox Mulder of the, the wine world. He very much so, to very believe. much, very much. And, and he's a really interesting figure because he, in a sense, as you said, he created the wine auction business back in the 60s. And this was when there were still bottles of wine, rare wine, to showing up. And, and But that couldn't last forever, could it? No, I mean, he, he sort of created the market, and then at a certain point, he had scoured, you know, the cellars of England and Scotland and France, and those sort of pristine cellars that had been in families for generations, you know, as prices of wine uh, rose, you know, anyone who, who found that they had some inherited wine like that who didn't want to drink it themselves realized, you know, they could sell it for quite a bit of money, and Broadbent was the guy to go to to sell it. And so at a certain point, he ran out of new cellars to to sell for the most part. And at that point, the stuff that he started selling in auction rooms was wine that had he had auctioned off, let's say, years before and was now being resold and, and it kept being resold and recycled through the auction rooms. You describe him as a, as a tomb raider. <laughs> yeah, so tomb I mean, he's kind of an Indiana Jones type. I mean, he's an archaeologist. He was an archaeologist of wine, you know. And then mysteriously, more and more old bottles started showing up and a lot of them came from uh, Hardy Rodenstock, and they were some interesting bottles, weren't they? They were. Hardy Rodenstock was like, uh, as a diviner is to water, Hardy Rodenstock was to wine. He had this uncanny knack for discovering these hidden, buried troves of wine that nobody else had ever found, like the lost Ikems of the czars of Russia, you know, which were apparently being smuggled out to Hardy Rodenstock via some friend who worked for Lufthansa. Or there was a seller in Caracas, Venezuela, that he paid over a million dollars in cash for, supposedly. And the Jefferson bottles, most famously, were were one of these discoveries. And one of the things that, that's really interesting about Hardy Rodenstock is that he's kind of proof of that wine tasting is, is it's something that you have, a, a physical thing that you have, and we've just learn this by, via taste buds. You can be kind of a scurvy lowlife, but have an excellent palate, can't you? Sure. I mean, there's no, you know, there's no uh, uh, moral component to one's palate. And uh, some people just have more taste buds than other people and are better tasters and are more gifted at, you know, analyzing the subtlest nuances of flavor on their tongue. Now, these old bottles of wine, they don't all taste really great, do they? <laughs> They don't, and one of the uh, when when you know at these events where these guys open these old bottles of wine, I mean, a typical comment would be something like, "It's still alive," or even just just, "It's wine." I mean, they, you know, sometimes you really couldn't go beyond that, and sometimes it wouldn't be alive or taste like wine. And, and one of the other interesting characters you, you introduce us to is the uh, the Forbes family, and. It's, you have a very interesting scene with the Forbes family versus the head of the uh, Wine Spectator. So 
Could you explain that scene for us? Sure. This was in 1985 uh, when Christie's auctioned off this Jefferson bottle, the 1787 Chateau Lafitte, you know, supposedly formerly the property of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Malcolm Forbes, the publisher, dispatched his son Kip to London to bid on it. And the Forbes family, uh, in addition to having a very nice wine cellar, also liked to collect presidential memorabilia. So this was, you know, the be-all and end-all for them. It was a, you know, one of the rarest bottles of wine ever discovered, and it was an artifact of presidential memorabilia. So Kip Forbes, you know, jets in on the on the uh, the capitalist tool jet, as the Forbes plane was called, and at the same time, there was a gentleman named Marvin Schenken who was and is the owner, publisher, and editor of the Wine Spectator magazine. And at the time, Wine Spectator was not nearly as uh, successful as it is now, but it was, you know, it was on the way up. It was just about to catch this wave of rising American interest in wine. And so Marvin Schenken flew to London on, a con- on the Concorde uh, so that he could bid on this bottle. And he assumed that he would be bringing it home for no more than $30,000. Well, basically, he and Kip Forbes ended up in a bidding duel. And Kip Forbes prevailed after paying $156,000. Yeah, despite the uh, presence of the fascinatingly named uh, Mr. Yablon, who was called Dr. No. Right. He was Malcolm Forbes' minister of finance, which meant that he was the guy in charge of restraining Malcolm's spending. Not successfully in this case. And Kip is an interesting character because he's kind of... he's. Uh, uh, a loser, isn't he? Kind of. He he doesn't ever really do the right thing. He seems to spend money when he's not supposed to, and not spend it when he is supposed to. Well, I I, I would not I I, I cannot uh, I, I would not say that Kip is a loser. I think that Malcolm was a hard man to please, and he put his kids in some difficult positions because Steve Forbes, you know, who later ran for president, he was dispatched on another occasion to bid for something, and you know he couldn't get it right either. Like Malcolm would say, oh, you should have bid more. And then if you bid more, he said you shouldn't have bid that much. And so I just think there was no pleasing him. I mean, I don't think Kip was to blame there. Now, meanwhile, in the 80s, when all this inflation of wine value is taking place and all these old wines are turning up, we're also starting to see the first instance of wine fraud. And I think the story, uh, the Feliciano case is really fascinating. And that was the first place where something really showed up and said, "Uh uh-oh. Right. That was where a guy uh, commissioned a, a printer of wallpaper to make some wallpaper with the repeating pattern of the Andy Warhol-designed label of a certain vintage of, of Mouton Rothschild. And he then cut it up and pasted it onto bottles. Uh, he did that for su- for some of the stuff. And then he also bought a cheaper vintage of Mouton and poured it into a more expensive uh, uh, vintage of Mouton and sold it for the more expensive price. Now, the problem with this kind of wine fraud is that there's no hard proof that any wine is anything that anybody says it is, is there? There really isn't for the most part. I mean, you have people's palates, you know, to judge to judge whether a wine is, is what it is. And some people certainly have, you know, more expert palates than others. But there have also been many cases of experts, you know, getting it wrong. There are certain tests you can do, carbon dating tests or other types of radio dating tests, that can prove whether a wine is modern or not uh, based on the amount of radioactivity in it because post-1950 with the atmospheric nuclear testing, uh, you see spikes of of, uh, radioactivity in wine. I mean, it's at a a level that is harmless to one's health, but which is detectable through these dating methods. And 
before 1950, that just doesn't show up. So you can at least show that a wine either dates post-50 or pre-50. But the, once these cases of fraud started to crop up, the wine world didn't really want to talk about them, did they? people in the wine world. They were, they didn't, that wasn't they didn't, something we're going to talk about. This really was a case of a conspiracy of silence because, you know, auctioneers did not want to spook the market. They didn't want, you know, collectors to begin to question whether the wine they were getting was, you know, what it purported to be. And Chateau didn't want to blow the whistle either because, you know, everyone was invested in, you know, a collective belief that the market was sound. And one of the, the problems, Things that showed up was at one of these. I think it was a horizontal tasting. I now you'll have to make correct me if I'm wrong. It was a horizontal tasting where there were four uh, different vintages of the same wine, and they all ended up tasting the same. That's right. That was I think one of the uh, Rodenstock's tastings in the late '80s, and it was several vintages from the 1920s and maybe the early 30s of Chateau Petrus, which is a, a very famous uh, red Bordeaux kind of a cult wine. And, you know, there were a group of experts at this table, including Serena Sutcliffe, who would shortly after that become the head of Sotheby's wine auction department, and some other very experienced tasters. And they all said, this is the same wine in five different glasses and labeled with five different vintages. And once this started to break loose, the entire world of wine collecting started to take a deep breath and become very afraid. And one man took action, and that was Mr. Uh, Koch. Mr. Koch, Koch. Bill Koch, yes. Mr. Bill, Bill Koch. Tell us about Bill Koch. Okay. He's an interesting character. He is an interesting character. Bill Koch is a Florida billionaire who originally inherited his wealth uh, from his family, which was it was Kansas oil and gas money. And he and his brothers ended up in a dispute, which resulted in a $470 million payout to Bill in the, in the mid-'80s. And he began to spend it on, on amassing an incredible wine cellar. And in 2005, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts said to Bill Koch, hey, we'd love to put on an exhibition of your collections because Bill Koch collected paintings. He collected Americana, like the pistol that killed Jesse James. He collected miniature models of the boats uh, from the America's Cup, which Bill Koch actually won in 1992, and he collected wine. And so Bill Koch, who had bought four of these Jefferson bottles privately, uh, wanted to put them in the show. And the museum said, okay, but we need to see paperwork and provenance. Uh, on these bottles. And Bill Koch's staff quickly found that they didn't really have any paperwork or provenance on them. And this led to his launching a an investigation. And he ultimately spent over a million dollars on it. And he hired ex-FBI and ex-Scotland Yard and ex-MI5 agents to conduct it for him. And one of these agents became known by the a name of Secret Squirrel. <laughs> That's right. That was Jim Elroy, who was the ex-FBI agent who ran the investigation. And it was a playful nickname just because he was you know, kind of all over the place and, and I think didn't always report in on exactly what he was doing or where he was. Now, uh, once he decided, to, once uh, Bill Koch decided to take this to court, he had to essentially create a means of uh, determining the evidence. And this is where some of the uh, carbon dating techniques you talk and radioactive analysis techniques you uh, talked about were actually first used. Right. There was, a, there was a physicist in Bordeaux named Philippe Hubert. And Mr. Hubert, uh, even though he lived in Bordeaux, was actually not especially interested in wine, but he just kind of happened through his research. Uh, he, he ended up inventing a new method for dating wine, which was uh, 
called cesium dating using a device called a germanium detector that was just a very sensitive device. And what was special about this device and this technique was that previously, if you wanted to carbon date wine, you had to open a bottle of wine and you had to um, you know, do various things to the liquid to make it ready to date. Dr. Hubert's method was so sensitive that you could date the wine without opening the bottle. And when you have a bottle that you spent fifty or $100,000 on, that's a pretty useful test. Now, this is not just the story of a search for wine, fraudulent and otherwise. It's also the story of the battle between two auction houses, and Christie's versus Sotheby's. And that's a really interesting saga in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, Michael Broadman has many, many virtues, but most people agree that, you know, a weakness is that he he has always just sort of ha- had it in for his rival at Sotheby's. He's always taken it very personally, and he's had this rivalry with Serena Sutcliffe in particular, who took over at Sotheby's in 1990. And over the years, he has, you know, declared publicly that he can't be in the same room with her, and it gets pretty catty. Uh could you tell me a little bit about how you did this research? I mean, I can't imagine a lot of these people were happy to see you knocking on their door, pulling skeletons out of the closet to put in a book. I think they were ambivalent because while on the one hand, you know, we now look at the story and it's kind of blown up into this big scandal, until a few years ago, this wasn't just, a, you know, even though there are questions about these bottles, for a lot of people, the, their involvement with these bottles was among the highlights of their life. I mean, for Michael Broadbent, it was a badge of pride that he had sold the most expensive bottle of wine in the world. I mean, Christie's, for years since the original sale, has included that fact in you know a lot of their literature that you know we sold the most expensive bottle of wine in the world. And people who went to some of these Rodenstock tastings, I mean, these were these were real you know peak experiences for a lot of people. So at the same time, there were questions. So there was a certain wariness that I encountered, and it took some time to get interviews with a number of these people, especially billionaires I found are hard to get interviews with. <laughs> but Michael Broadman was actually very um, refreshingly receptive to me. I mean, I first uh, interviewed him in 2003, and then I subsequently interviewed him a number of other times. But he was a little bit wary, but he was generally receptive. And Kip Forbes was actually very receptive also. Now, did you get to talk to, to Rodenstock? I communicated with Rodenstock, but Rodenstock's favorite mode of communication is fax. And so that is how I communicated with him. And he would respond pretty promptly to my faxes. But, you know, I would fax him in Munich and and the Munich fax machine would bounce the fax to wherever he was, whichever of his houses. And then I would receive a fax back with the cut line obscured and I wouldn't have any idea where he was. But at least I was getting some answers. I mean, he was pretty selective about which questions he would answer. And, you know, he was pretty on message and saying the same thing over and over again. But at least there was some communication. I tried to go to his village in in Austria uh, to have a face-to-face meeting. But when I got there, he refused to see me. Well, that's really interesting. Now, as you started working on this book, could you tell me a little bit about just the process of writing this and organizing the story? Because it's got a great mystery, and it's a really kind of a pulse-pounding page-turner. Well, from the beginning, I you know, saw it as a mystery story that would unfold narratively. And it, when I began working on it, I was hopeful that you know, I might be able to crack this mystery, but I certainly, there were no guarantees that I would be able to. And um, when I began working on it, it, I started out just with you know, one interview at a time and kind of building the story brick by brick. And one thing that happened that was just incredibly serendipitous was when I really began working on the story in earnest in 2005, Uh, I very quickly encountered a sort of interesting phenomenon, which was I would interview somebody and they would say, you know, this is really odd because, I mean, this was a story that was at this point 
20 years old and they'd say, this is really odd. I mean, this is 20 years old, but I just got a call from someone else last week about this. And at first I was really worried that there was another journalist out there, you know, competing with me for the story. But what it turned out was these were Bill Koch's investigators. And Bill Koch's had become suspicious by pure coincidence just when I was ramping up my investigation. So in the end, the book could track his investigation and I think became a lot richer because of that. And, you know, as generous as my book advance was, it could not hold a candle to Bill Koch's resources in, in investigating the mystery. So Bill Koch gave you access to his his uh, investigators? He gave me limited access. I, I had lunch with him down in Palm Beach. We, you know, he drove me through Palm Beach in his Mercedes Maybach to the Palm Beach Yacht Club. And, you know, we spent some time together. Uh, but I mostly was in touch with a gentleman in his office named Brad Goldstein. But we were regularly trading notes. And he would tell me what their investigation was finding. And I would tell him about, you know, some interview that I had done and what I was finding. And and once you put this together, when you wrote the prose, it's really kind of rich, and you cover a lot of different stylistic ground. Could you talk about just composing this? Did you write this on by longhand on a computer, or put it together bits and pieces and stitch them back together as a Frankenstein? Or I think it was a little bit of a Frankenstein, which I think maybe is the case in nonfiction more than in fiction, because, you know, I was able to write it as I got the information, since it was nonfiction, all the information that underlay it. And you don't always get the information in a tidy, linear way. And so I might, you know, get an interview with someone who would appear in Chapter 9 before I got the interview with a guy who would appear in Chapter 3. So it was very much, you know, a, a pretty messy process where I was going back and forth between the reporting and the writing. And I, it was mostly on my laptop computer. Now, you, when you started this book, you didn't know what the investigation would turn up. Was there a point when you had uh, uh, the light bulb go on and said, oh, my God? I think there were a few points. When I began working on it, I, I knew of all the questions. I mean, that's what made it a compelling mystery. I certainly knew, you know, that there were a lot of question marks around the bottles, around Hardy Rodenstock. But I didn't know why there were these question marks. And I thought, you know, maybe these bottles were Jefferson's. Maybe they were found in Paris. And maybe Hardy Rodenstock's not telling where he found them or how many there were for some other reason, like, you know, they were part of a Nazi cellar. I mean, I, I thought, I didn't know what the nature of the, you know, deep, dark secret was that was keeping Hardy Rodenstock from revealing, you know, the answers. And as I got deeper into it, you know, I began to wonder, you know, is it possible that the entire thing is just a, 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 a you know, very creative concoction of Hardy Rodenstock? I mean, the whole story, I mean, is it possible that, you know, he cooked up these bottles in his basement. And I really went back and forth in my mind because there was a lot of contradictory evidence. And I think this is one of the reasons why it remained an unsolved mystery for so many years, is for every bit of evidence that suggested that, you know, the, this this wine had been forged and Hardy Rodenstock was a con man, there would be some other evidence that would point to a perhaps more innocent explanation. I mean, even, you know, I could even identify somewhat with Broadbent's view, the, the Fox Mulder, you know, worldview. I, I sort of held to that a little bit myself because maybe because I wanted them to really have been Jefferson's because I was pretty enamored of the idea that there had been this secret tomb, you know, with Jefferson's wine that had been sitting there for 200 years underneath the streets of Paris and no one knew about it. And then these workers just happened upon it. And I just thought that was so neat, you know, but then I would step back and say, but wait a minute. I mean, why don't these bottles tally with the Jefferson record? And there were a whole bunch of other kind of back and forth like that. So I really went back and forth. I, I mean, there'd be a day when I would say to someone, you know, I think they're they're fake. And then, I, you know, a week later, I'd be on the other side of it. And so when you sold this book 
to your publisher, brought it. Did, did you have the an advance in advance and sell the idea before you um, started the work? Well, I started working on a proposal in the year 2000, and I did not sell the proposal to, to crown my publisher until 2005. Between 2000 and 2005, I mean, I was not working on it full time at all, and I actually shelved it for a few years because of for boring reasons. But during that period, I did interview Kip Forbes and I did interview Michael Broadbent. And I also had you know, done a bunch of other kind of documentary research. And doing those initial interviews and that initial documentary research allowed me to ultimately create a very detailed proposal with chapter outlines, um, but which did not say what the resolution would be. I mean, it, it set it up as a mystery, but I said, you know, it is my goal to try to solve this mystery. But when I sold it to Crown, it, it was with the hope of solving it, not with a, a guaranteed solution. And then they gave me an advance, which uh, allowed me to leave my job as a magazine writer and w- devote myself full-time to this for about two years. Now, one thing that you advantage you have that they didn't have 20 years ago when this was all unfolding was the Internet. And how much of a part did the Internet play in your research? That's a good question. I think that one th- – I'm not sure how much – I mean, I played as much of a role in my research as it plays in anyone's research in the sense I certainly used Google wherever I could and, you know, Nexus and things like that. And you can now electronically access some court records. And, you know, I made it, you know, use of all of those tools. But I think the internet or the absence of it explains a lot about why this story even came into existence and why this mystery persisted. Because I don't think today that – Hardy Rodenstock could have as many questions surrounding him as he had for all of those years and still be able to, you know, stay in business as a wine dealer and as a guy pretty central to the wine world. Because, you know, someone would blog about him and, you know, there'd be no way to sort of keep any of this secret. And I think for all of those years, a lot of the information was compartmentalized and now it's not. We've been speaking with Benjamin Wallace. His new book is The Billionaire's Vinegar. Thank you for joining me, Benjamin. Thanks, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.